With great power comes great responsibility. If you had the knowledge of how to manipulate the media to spread your own message, would you use it for good? Today's guest does just that, using street art as his means of communication. So how did he get such power? Well, he got it through a rather interesting career path that was motivated by extreme curiosity and a desire to spread a message. I'm your host, Jacob Johnson. This is the My Art is Real podcast, episode 20, Plastic Jesus, right after the break. This episode is brought to you by the Beautiful Bazaar Art Prize. If you are an artist, now is the time to enter the contest and showcase your work on their international platform and have a chance to win $50,000 in prize money. You have until midnight on July 17th, LA time, to enter the contest. To enter and find all the information, go to beautifulbazaarartprize.art. Today's guest, Plastic Jesus, currently has some works on exhibition at Krauss Gallery in New York City. So if you are in New York City and would love to see Plastic Jesus works in person, head on over to Krauss Gallery on Orchard Street. Thank you for your support and enjoy the episode. My name is Nick. I work under the name of Plastic Jesus. I'm a British-born L.A. street artist. If you follow pop culture at all, you have probably heard of or seen the works of Plastic Jesus. His work is often controversial and straightforward and pokes fun at our celebrities and politicians. His goal is to at least get people talking about these issues, and he does a great job at doing just that. But Nick wasn't always Plastic Jesus, and in fact, he had no intentions whatsoever of becoming a street artist. Where did you grow up and what kind of stuff did you get into? I was born and grew up um, about 15, 20 miles north of London, uh, an area called Hertfordshire. It's very kind of suburban, very... I suppose middle middle class, not very exciting. You know, when I was growing up, there was a there was a mixture of stuff. I was into creative stuff from quite an early age. I loved drawing. wasn't very good at it, but loved it. And I loved making things out of wood. You know, at the time where most kids are probably you know playing with stuff in the garden, I was in a, a small workshop at the back of our garage at a family home, just kind of knocking knocking bits of wood together. So I was pretty hands on creative from an early stage. As Nick would get older, he started to dabble more into technology, all thanks to the influence of his father. But also, added to that, um, I very much got into electronics as a hobby. I was into music. I started building things like guitar effects using it. I built a synthesizer, electronic piano, and this kind of stuff. So I also had this kind of technical background and also technical hands-on interest as well. So there was the creative side and the technical side there. I was fortunate. My father was basically an electronics engineer, so he was always fixing stuff, building stuff. There was always electronic components and circuit boards around the house, and I was kind of inquisitive and asking what they were, and probably started electronics as a hobby from the age of about 13. Uh, my father was more into the, the research side by then. In fact, he developed a process called uh, plasma etching and has a patent for it. And that's a process that now gives us the semiconductor and memory chips that we have now. Without that process, we wouldn't have them. So he was quite a bright guy and very keen to encourage me to, uh, to go along the lines of uh, electronics, I guess. Nick would use this love of technology and tinkering to connect with his brothers more, which would then lead him down this path of music in his late teens. I have two brothers. I have an older brother and a younger brother. Um, although we did used to like most kids play out, and, you know, we'd explore the area on push bikes during the summer and this kind of stuff. Um, my brothers were never really into what I was into. But as I got older, as I got into my teens, 
my electronics background and knowledge really helped with the music side of things. You know, I was in a few bands playing guitar, playing keyboards, and it was always me that had the amps, the cables, be able to fix people's guitars and this kind of stuff. Once Nick was in his later teen years, he was out performing music for different parties and venues here and there and had this idea of becoming a performer as he got older. Whenever Nick got into a hobby, he had to be the best at it and would spend countless hours working on his craft. But while music was a big part of his life, photography was also a hobby he was doing on the side. We would do local gigs in bars, in pubs, in clubs, and the occasional party. Um, but it's, a, it's an interesting time because I started taking my camera to music gigs and started photographing other bands and people that turn up to see these bands and other band members would contact me and say, hey, you took some photos last night at this gig. Can I, can I get some prints from you? So at the age of about 16, 17, I was making what could be described as probably a good, good amount of weekly money from selling photographs to band members and fans of bands that were going to local gigs. In fact, I made more money from the photography side than from the music side, which is probably more of an indictment of my music ability than uh, <laughs> a celebration of my photography. And how did photography make its way into your life? A few things. My father was a keen photographer. He, you know, he was always processing films and taking. He was an appalling photographer, I have to say, but he was always taking a, a, a lot of photos, processing films, and, and, and that kind of thing. Um. But one thing that really got into me, I, I, into it, I, I think I was around about seven or eight years old. And I was at my grandparents' house in Tottenham, North London. And my cousin, my older cousin was there. And he was reading a copy of the Daily Newspaper, which I think was the Daily Mirror. And I just remember seeing him thinking, wow, that's a really grown up thing to do, to read a newspaper. So when he put that newspaper down, I went and picked it up just for no other reason than that. I thought it was a grown up thing to do. And I remember being absolutely captivated by the photographs in there. At the time, there were photographs of, you know, football soccer players, you know, with their long permed hair, champagne and beautiful girls on each arm. There was probably pictures of the troubles in Northern Ireland, British Army, you know, military vehicles there and so on. There was probably pictures of trouble in the Middle East. You know, some things don't change even to this day. But, you know, that's the kind of thing I was looking at. And I would have been too young to even understand what the stories were about. But that absolutely captivated my imagination. And I remember from then on at home, I would grab the daily newspaper, which was the Daily Telegraph my father used to read. I'd, I'd get down to breakfast to kind of go through it before he did. And I would tear pictures out of it. And I'd always look at the name in the bottom left-hand corner to see the name of the photographer or what's called the byline to see who had taken it. Like, what would you do with that information about who would take these photos? You were just trying to remember it or? No, I was just, I just thought that was a really cool thing to do, to be able to travel the world, I suppose, in some, some, to some extent, to get paid for it. Although that idea of earning, earning income was probably beyond me at that age. Um, but to travel the world and see all these amazing events that are making history and to, to record that, I, I found that absolutely fascinating. As you would expect, it would be quite hard for a teenager to be performing and doing photography while keeping good grades in school. So Nick's definitely suffered. Graduating and finishing school is a, a very kind of loose term for me and a very kind of gray area because at that kind of age, when I was in my mid-teens, I started school getting A's. I was a pretty good academic student, but I got very bored. So my first school report is AAAB. 
uh, I started getting bored, not concentrating, not focusing. And, and, and then my second year was A, B, B, C. And then my third year was B, C, C. And um, I, I think my last year report, the year tutor said, it, it looks like Nick isn't even coming to school anymore because I was really in that kind of teenage angst type of, as I said earlier, is this all there is to life? So I never really finished school. I kind of stopped going when I was around 15 years old. I remember having some end of year exams and um, I remember a chemistry exam and it said, you know, if you have this chemical heated to a certain temperature and you pass this gas over it, what describe what happens. And I just put, it goes bang. For Nick, he had finished all of his classes, but this couple of tests stood in his way of actually graduating. But he just didn't care. He was ready to go into the world and work. For him, going to university wasn't that important. He had his hobbies, but he didn't quite know what he wanted to be in life. He really had no thoughts of becoming an artist either. I was fortunate, though, that I did have this keen interest in electronics. And after a small time of unemployment, I did go into a job in an electronics company. Um, repairing and then developing electronic control systems for things like uh, lighting and security lighting, lighting, dimming control and that kind of stuff. And obviously that was well before Wi-Fi and the internet and everything was very kind of basic in terms of electronics then. So that was, that was enjoyable. That was kind of the way I suppose my life was destined to go because of my hobby electronics interest. Nick started to look for the next step in his life and what he saw was the ones driving the nice cars and making all the money was the salespeople. So he started working toward that goal. Before long, he had himself one of those nice company cars. But I then realized that, you know, the people that, uh, that have the nice company cars and go out for company uh, lunches and all this kind of stuff aren't the engineers. It's the salespeople. So I then drifted into electronic and, and electrical equipment sales. And I did that for a few years, which I have to say I absolutely hated. Well, he did get the better pay and the company car. It didn't make him very happy. Yeah, that was a difficult transition. Uh, to me, at the time, it seemed like a pro uh, progression to go from the, the guy with dirty fingernails having just dismantled a motor or a driver or gearbox, you know, and, and wearing ovals and covered in grease and soldering shit up to, you know, wearing a nice suit and a tie and a, a briefcase and driving a car that's paid for by somebody else to, to go and see a client and sit in their office you know to me that looked like progress but it was it was is absolutely horrible i remember i was driving driving up road to see some clients and customers in cambridge one day beautiful bit of countryside and i remember driving along and I, the cars were coming the other way on the other side of the road and surrounded by fields and i just thought you know if i veered slightly onto the other side of the road and have a crash I could probably get a few months off work. Sadly, I think so many people go through their life, go through their daily job thinking something like that. If I do something that means I can't work, you know, if I, if I, if I get fired, if I get made redundant, if I have an injury, if, you know, if I suffer stress, and what, a, what a waste of your life. And I'm saying that from somebody who did that. So to keep these dark thoughts at bay, he decided to focus more on his photography dreams and put his focus on becoming a photojournalist, just like all the other photographers he had admired as a kid. Well, fortunately, the passion in photography and news photography had never gone away. So 
Um, the beauty about having a company car was that I could drive to all these kind of news events as I, I decided that I wanted to be a news photographer. And there were things happening in London, there were protests, there was, you know, the occasional, you know, police incident. And I would, instead of going and see customers, I would get in the company car and, and drive down to these incidents and, and try and get photographs to sell to newspapers. The only thing I had to be careful was, was if TV crews were there, I had to make sure that I wasn't in the back of one of their shots in case one of my bosses saw me on the six o'clock news on the nine o'clock news, um, you know, in, in London taking photographs rather than up in Norfolk or Suffolk visiting customers, which is what I was getting paid to do. Nick would do this for about two years. For him, this was sort of, of an informal schooling. Instead of sitting in a classroom learning from teachers who may not have ever done any of the things they were teaching you, he was in the world, in the action, learning from the people who were actively doing what he wanted to do and was building up his connections in the process. Well, I made no money from it, but it was hugely beneficial because what I was doing, I was I was going there, I was observing uh, I was observing other news photographers seeing, looking at the equipment they were using, looking how they, you know, where they were positioning themselves to get whatever photo they were getting, uh, you know, not, not just the, the, the technical stuff that they were doing, but, you know, I'd kind of be in with them and I'd listen to how they, how they were talking, the language that they were using. Uh, you know, that, for example, they wouldn't call a photograph a photograph. They'd say to each other, hey, did you get a smudge? You know, or uh, some something like this. You know, can I can I blag a frame? So I was listening to the language that they were using, the way they were conducting themselves, and I think, you know, there's that expression "fake it until you make it," and really that's what I was doing. So it gave me that opportunity to learn those skills that you wouldn't learn out of any book, but it also gave me the opportunity when I was getting these photographs to get on the phone to news editors, sorry, to photo editors at newspapers and say, "Hey, my name's Nick. I'm a freelance photographer. I've just got photos of this." Do you want to see them? So although I wasn't selling anything because either my pictures weren't good enough or there were other photographers there or they just weren't interested, it got my name. Those picture editors knew my name. So so when I spoke to them next, I was like, oh, hi, Nick, where are you? What you been up to kind of thing. So that was beneficial on that level as well. Throughout those two years, he had this feeling in his gut that if he just worked hard enough, he could make it. And one day he finally got that big break. There was no doubt, not an arrogant sort of doubt, just a a hardworking, uh, you know, I'm going to make this work kind of no doubt. Um, yeah, that I, couldn't, I could make it work. I remember it was around Christmas. I can't remember the year at the moment, but my friend, um, he was coming up to London from the West Country, from, from Devon or Somerset, to stay with me for a few days. And I'd, I'd heard on the police scanner that there'd been an incident. A guy had come and snatched his child from his wife or girlfriend. He claimed to have a gun and said that if anybody comes for him, he's going to shoot them. So I jumped in my car and I rushed down to this area five, maybe 10 miles from where I lived. And I just got there just after the guy had been shot by police. He's lying there on the ground. The paramedics, yeah, the, the paramedics are working on him. There's a police, a cop who was shot as well. She'd been put in the back of an ambulance. And I got photographs of this. So I got straight on the phone to The Sun, which was the best-selling daily newspaper at the time. And they knew my name. So I said, hi, it's Nick here. I'm just in... Enfield in North London, this has just happened, and I've got photos. So the picture editor said, hey, do you want? it was in the days of film. We couldn't just send pictures via email, so you've got a can of film in your hand. So he said, do you want to bring, bring, bring your film in? So kind of strolled into there. I called up from security, and they gave me a daily pass to get in, and I walked, casually walked up to the picture desk as though 
this was the most natural thing in the world. And I walked up the fish and said, hey, uh, Davey, yeah, Nick, uh, I've got these pictures from the shooting up in Enfield in North London. So he gave me this little ticket. He said, right, take them out the back there, take them to the film processing room out the back. I did that. And I, I walked out the back, gave them the processing guys. And then I went in the bathroom and I called up my buddy Simon, who is on his way up to stay at my place for a few days. And I said, Simon, you never can't believe this. I'm in the Sun newspaper. They want my pictures. <laughs> it was like, even now, I remember that. To me, it was like, wow, I'd, I'd made it. Once the paper came out, he went to look for his picture, but you wouldn't believe what he found. Simon had got to my house. I got home late. We went into Camden. We went clubbing that night. We went down to Oxford Street uh, to pick up the early edition of the newspaper at about, I think, 11, 12 o'clock at night. This is the next day's newspaper. And I picked up a copy and I flicked through it. and I, I couldn't see my pictures in there. Uh, the reason I didn't see it, 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 was it, it was because it was on the front page and I'd flicked straight past it. So that was pretty cool. Um, and then I noticed they spelled my name wrong. But hey, <laughs> they spelled it right on the check, so that was important. He had finally did it. After all those years of hard work, it all paid off, and his photos were now in the papers. Not long after this, Nick went on vacation, and he was sitting on a beach in Spain with the same buddy who was actually with him when his first photo got published in the paper. It was on this beach that Nick had his next idea for his future. Flew out to Spain uh, with a great buddy on a lot one of these last minute kind of vacation bookings and i sat on the beach and i said simon you know when we get back to the uk i'm gonna quit my job i'm gonna do news photography and and that was it i, I did literally that the, the day we got back from that one week 10 day vacation i wrote my resignation letter probably mailed it off because i don't think there was much in the way of email then but uh, uh and, and 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 that was it now at the time it was terrifying um you know I had no money. I probably had a couple of thousand bucks behind me. And I seriously thought, well, I'll give it a go. If it hasn't worked in three months, I can start looking for another job. And that's where I was. Um, but it was probably the most consequential and best move I, I ever made. And how did it feel to finally be living that dream of yours, the one you've been working toward for and, and so hard for? Yeah, it, it felt it felt great. I was, you know, I was... I was very, I was single. I had no pets. I had no pop plants quite simply because my phone would ring and I'd have to be on a, the next plane, uh, out of, uh, you know, out of Heathrow to, I know, South Africa or Japan or Germany or New York or something. And it was great. You know, I felt of, I suppose there's a certain element of self importance in that as well. Oh, wow. You know, oh, I'm doing all this stuff. I'm really having this kind of jet setting kind of. I had this jet setting kind of lifestyle, but at the same time, it was, you know, it's quite, quite lonely, I suppose, because often you're sent away by yourself. You're missing friends' parties, you're missing friends' birthdays, friends' weddings, all this kind of stuff. He continued to do this for about 20 years. Then a shift happened within the media industry. They started to chase the views more than telling important and compelling stories. With most of their content focused on celebrity drama. The agency Nick was working for at the time had moved him out to L.A., and he was loving L.A., but he wasn't really loving the sort of work he was doing. He was following celebrities around, snapping photos, but it was one particular job that pushed Nick to quit. I quit an agency. I came here, I was working for an agency, for the photo agency, and I quit because I refused to chase Britney Spears around. It was that time when Britney was going through that uh, traumatic period. She shaved her head. She was going for 4 a.m. 4 a.m. runs to Starbucks and so on. 
And it was getting pretty dangerous. I've done some pretty scary stuff as a news photographer. In fact, that's how I gained a reputation by, you know, by being pretty fearless. But to me, it, that would have ended in Britney Spears' death or a photographer's death or a complete innocent bystander's death. So I quit the agency. After leaving that job, Nick decided it was time to reinvent himself once again. Only this time it was going to be into a creative photographer. But his old portfolio of horrific images he had taken for the news wasn't really going to help him get the kind of jobs he was looking for. Firstly, I needed a portfolio. I had a great news portfolio, but as a news photographer, my news portfolio was covering some of the most horrific incidents you would you would want to see, and it wouldn't work well for a very a portfolio anything outside news. You know, I started doing photo shoots with my friends. Um, I've got some lights and a background, and started doing some portrait shoots just to develop some kind of um, creative portfolio. And I hit on the idea with one friend to recreate one of Banksy, the street artist Banksy's, one of his pieces, and it was a flower thrower. So um, we, I set about recreating that. So uh, I set it up in a street in LA, him as the model, as the character, and I played great attention to detail, and I recreated Banksy's flower thrower piece. Um, and I put it on social media, and it got amazing feedback from people, absolutely loved it. So I ended up creating nearly 20 of Banksy's iconic pieces, Mona Lisa with the RPG, the kissing cops, the, the maid sweeping trash under a wall, uh, the um, handcuffed prisoner, the stack over his head. Uh, well, you know, I, as I say, I ended up nearly doing 20 of them and they went viral. They hit the web and every day my inbox would, was full from my Google news alerts or people saying, oh, we love these, can we use them? Um, and that project, which pe people can find actually, if you if you Google um, Banksy recreation, you are not Banksy. That's the title of it. You are not Banksy. That's why I called the project. That got me looking at stencils and stencil art in probably way more detail than any sane person normally would. When recreating these pieces, I was trying to reverse engineer what Banksy had done. I'm thinking, right, if Banksy had seen people in the street doing this, how would it have looked? Where where is the eye line? Is it the same eye line as the subject? Is it to the left? Is it to the right? Is it, is it above? Is it below? What's the interaction between the subject and the background and so on? So I was really analyzing these with almost forensic precision to recreate them. From music to photography, for Nick, the one connecting factor that connected all of these pursuits was to spread a message. A message he himself felt needed to be told, and what he discovered through Banksy's works was maybe this medium of stencil art being thrown up on public walls for the public to see with no middleman was the perfect way to do just that. And I suppose that gave me an understanding how quite how a quite simple uh, stencil piece, sometimes just a one-two color stencil piece, can work as a piece of art to convey a message. I mean, Banksy is the, the ultimate genius of this. You look at some of his most powerful work and it's just a black stencil on a white wall but carries so much meaning. And which work was the first stencil you actually made? No, the first stencil I made was uh, a stencil of Lance Armstrong connected to an IV drip. And that was a few days before he gave his interview with Oprah Winfrey about his drug, uh, you know, his big drug confession. Right from that moment, I realized that combining, effectively combining the, the, the varying jobs I'd had was really beneficial. The reason for that is the whole story of say, Lance Armstrong had been running for some time. Was he taking drugs? Wasn't he taking drugs? Yes, he is taking drugs. And it was all over the media. 
Then there was this announcement he was doing an Oprah Winfrey interview. But at that point, there was no more new story out there. There was no more new angles. Everything had been printed. So I realized if I can put a piece of art out a couple of days before his Oprah Winfrey interview, I'd probably get some news pick up for it. And sure enough, I, I did. You know, it made the BBC, it made CNN, it made the Daily Mail, it made, you know, Huffington Post, it made, it made everywhere, you know, because I was using my background as a journalist to, in terms of timing the news cycle and the ability to literally phone up a newspaper and say, hey, I've got these pictures of this stencil, this Lance Armstrong stencil, this artist has done, not admitting it was me. This is when all the pieces of Nick's life started to come together and he saw the complete picture. Through street art, he was able to form a simple yet effective message, and through his knowledge of the media cycle, was able to effortlessly manipulate these outlets into spreading his message on an even larger scale. Because for Nick, all that mattered was the message. Now, I never set out wanting to be an artist. <laughs> I can say tongue-in-cheek, I still don't want to be an artist. Um, to me, if somebody say, how do you categorize what you do? I would say, I'm still a photojournalist, it's only my medium that's changed. It's about getting messages out there. So I've never been an artist to say, oh, great, I want the, you know, this gallery or that gallery. I want to do a show here. You know, I want to do a show there. I want to be in these collections. I've never done that and, and, and never would that. You know, I would, my purpose of my art, my purpose as an artist is to, to get a message out about perhaps drug taking, about fame, about, you know, government overreach, about banking and debt and so on. So that's always been my aim. Uh, I'm not a very good writer, I mean, so I can't write. If I was a better musician, I might be writing songs about the kind of stuff that I make art about, but visual art seems to be the way that I'm able to do it. One of Nick's most popular and widespread pieces of art was the simple stencil that said, Stop Making Stupid People Famous. Stop Making Stupid People Famous actually dates back to... I think around 2008, and I wrote a comment piece. I'm not sure where it was now. It's so long ago. It might have been Huffington Post, but I, I wrote a piece that, you know, they had, they had a story about the, the dubbing down of news media, that news media was now focusing more on reality TV show stars than it was genuine news. And I wrote a piece, and I included in it the phrase that if we want better quality news, we should stop making stupid people famous. And then I started doing street art. And I thought, well, that, that would actually make quite a good street art stencil. And that's what happened. And I put it on the street and it's now gone viral multiple times as barely a day goes by where it's not posted and, and, and tweeted or blogged somewhere from anywhere from China, Iran, Germany, you know, wherever. You know, it's appearing all over the place. Seen it print in Thai, where people have taken it themselves and recreated it on a wall, which is awesome. You see, the power Nick has to persuade the news outlets to cover his works and spread his message is a pretty incredible thing. I like to think we are lucky enough to have artists in this world like Nick and Banksy and others that can spread these important messages across the globe in such a direct and meaningful way. You know, to me, art is much more important than some people give it credit. Art is our way of leaving a mark on history and capturing the time we live in for the future generations to come. And so then I asked Nick what he felt like being the artist he is today and seeing where he's come. To be where I am now, I mean, I'm sitting in my studio downtown. Downtown, I've got about 1,500 square feet. I'm about five minutes south of the Staples Center. Uh, I'm looking right in front of my bench. There's a street art installation, which is going out next week. It will hopefully be featured on news channels and newspapers and so on. So it's quite mind-blowing to think that there I was this, 
five, six, seven year old boy banging bits of wood together in the in the family car garage back in Hertfordshire in you know the early seventies or whatever and to be here now. But I think one of the one of the most thing one of the most interesting things, amusing things that drives it home. I mentioned my school background. I pretty much dropped out of school. If you look at my last school report card by Mrs. Breach, it says Nick needs to ask himself what he hopes to achieve. If he continues the way he, he is going, he will achieve nothing. He needs to take a long, hard look at himself and take some tough decisions. And I remember sitting in my backyard up in the Hollywood Hills on a Sunday evening with the sun blaring down, drinking a rather nice glass of red wine, thinking, yeah, I need to wonder where I'm going. You can find Plastic Jesus on Instagram and Twitter and even see his work in person at Krauss Gallery in New York City until July 8th. This episode was completely made by me, Jacob Johnson, in hopes that you find some inspiration for your own art. Music is by QShop, that's C-U-E, shop.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. And until next time, keep making real art.